I finally got insurance so All I right. can get the um much deserted deserted deserve <laughs> dessert therapy I need. Woo! Yay! Woo! That's exciting. I'm very excited. No, no, no to medication though. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I need to do the same thing, man. I need to I know. start making making those moves. I got these like these these little like at first they were like cute little like monsters, but now they're getting bigger and bigger and they they're they're harder to manage and I feel like I'm going a little Looney Tunes. <laughs> we all go mad sometimes. Yeah. Or a little mad yeah. sometimes. Yeah. No, I mean that that's really great though, man. Like yeah, I I think I mean I, I definitely know I can I could benefit from from that. So I mean it's just oh, yeah, hard, me too. you know, making, making, making those moves to actually get in there and start doing the work, you know? Totally. I never, I know, you know, I've always been a proponent for it and I don't know why I've avoided it for so long. Yeah. yeah. Same Z's. Yeah. I mean, it's not like something you are excited about, you know? No, I mean, time, I don't so. really <laughs> love paying someone to make me cry, but you know, that's okay. <laughs> I don't want to go like, <laughs> what, what was that? Spelunking? Is that it? Spelunking? Isn't that, what, what do they cave? call the cave? Cave? Climbing? Yeah, cave diving? yeah. What do they call that? Oh yeah, yeah. Spelunk. That is spelunking. Yeah, it's you know spelunking in your mind. into the dark my... recesses of your mind. Yeah, the icky, icky, horrible pain that is my heart. <laughs> Those bat-infested caves. Yeah. <laughs> I I didn't realize someone was on a stage the other day. I was fixing and I had cut my hands a bunch, like little cuts that that week. And I was like, my body is a roadmap of pain. <laughs> And this lady girl <laughs> laughed so hard. I was like, oh, I didn't know anybody was in here. <laughs> I had like four bandages on. <laughs> I still maintain what I said, though. It, it is a real Yeah, I'm like, it's true, though. <laughs> you have a super glue. No, seriously. You have a super glue cut shut. I have. <laughs> <laughs> Do you do you get hot glue all over your hands all the time? Girl, I got this from hot glue. Oh, hold up. Oh yeah. Right here. Well, the thing is, is like what I do is I gather all my shit up from the stage, and then my hot glue is still on, and then it gets me. <laughs> Ow! Ow! Kiss from a gun. <laughs> oh man. Like, why is she laughing? I'm sure they think that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Under the Pendulum. I'm Chris Weber. <laughs> Here, as always, is Heather Weber. Hello! And joining us from Los Angeles, it's Caitlin Weber. Hi! <laughs> Do you ever burp and it sounds like a piggy? <laughs> I do. <laughs> no i just have some really mighty burps now as of the past couple years oh just yeah guttural like barney burps you know with the with the lip quiver yeah. i love when the immediate you, you you're usually around people that laugh but then people that don't laugh and you're like oh i can't do this like i did yeah it actually disgusts some people yeah do you ever do you ever try to like suppress like a really like, just like from the bottom of the oh, stomach never. burp i can't and you're, just, and you're just you're you're trying to be like you know polite but you're just like yeah <laughs> oh sure okay i was going to say i'd be afraid to come out the other end <laughs> 
<laughs> like a cannon. Yo, you guys. <laughs> Backfiring. Two days ago, I had unstoppable farts 24 hours. <laughs> I Dude, that's just don't me, know what babe. I ate. I must have been excessive cheese, but it was just <laughs> unstoppable. Did it smell like the inside of a tomb? It smelled like... Yes, it smelled like the inside of a tomb. It smelled like, like you know those sandals you see on the side of the road that are like half in a pile of shit and like a puddle. Like someone stepped in a big pile of shit and, and they just abandoned like, the yeah, sandal. Yeah, and then somehow roadkill got all smoked on it too. That's what it smelled like. I don't know if it's that just getting into bad. like my, you know, getting further into my thirties, but like. I just I I can't stop farting. It's like uh, becoming so a concern. I can't either. <laughs> like literally, I don't know James if it's, will look into it's my genetic, eyes or... and just fart because he farts so much. Dude, I do that with <laughs> M. Go like I, this, I... like toot toot, and it's oh, fine. see that's that's getting creative. I like that. <laughs> or, that's cute. What are you gonna say, Chris? No, I just like I can't like yeah. All, all you can do is laugh about it. Like it escapes. They're like convicts. Well, They're just that I know. busted. Because we're slowly dying every day, and our insides are rotting out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes it's musty, like a crypt, you know, or like yeah, some some ancient or, Egyptian tomb. Yeah, or like uh, or a sarcophagus. The mummies we're about to talk about, y'all. Yeah, so that's enough fart banner. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, mummy so, farts. Am I right? <laughs> man, mummy's got a fart, man. <laughs> It'd be like a cloud of dust and some flower petals. <laughs> Couple gold nuggets. <laughs> oh, it's like a pest dispenser. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, here comes the scroll we were looking for. Yeah. <laughs> it's like an egg that, you know, it's like one of those like mystery eggs, you know, like a Wonder Ball. Like what's in a Wonder Ball? It's like, what's inside? <laughs> so if you haven't already noticed, on today's episode, we'll be discussing the many uses of mummies. And this is a actually a very interesting one. I it, it, oh, A little yeah. more lighthearted than our last series. It got a little... Yeah. Got a little dry and depressing the last one. Yeah. yeah. So ancient Egypt's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. I took a class in college, like the the art history level, and it was really, really goddamn cool. I loved it. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, like you could study, you know, like if you study any Mediterranean cultures, ancient cultures, like you'll inevitably talk about Egypt because they've been they were such a a huge empire for thousands of years. I mean, yeah. going back to the Bronze Age, they were one of the big three or four in the Mediterranean. Yeah, it's like uh, everybody going around wearing Victorian shit, like acting like vampires, steampunk. No, nah, man, they were acting like Egyptians. Like the cool <laughs> thing to do is be Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that needs to get brought back as like a, a fashion, I think. Oh yeah, Egyptian. Yep. Only Halloween. Yeah, Only unfortunately, Halloween. dress up like a slutty pharaoh. <laughs> oh yeah, like in the movie The Mummy, where she's got that hot body paint, just oh, so yeah. he knows when it touches her, and she's all naked. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't watched it. You've never the, seen the, the, the mummy? mummy, not with the Brendan Tom Fraser. One. 
Brendan oh. Fraser. I've seen the Brendan Fraser one. There's a Tom Cruise mummy. Yeah, it was like yep. a remake they did um, a few years Damn. ago. Yeah, it was supposed to to kick off the the Universal Monsters revival, and it sunk it. Yeah, it was really that bad. Is such a bummer. Scientology, I tell you. <laughs> Do you see the Bullshit. damage it does? Yeah. <laughs> So most of this episode will revolve around the way Victorian-era Europeans used mummies as not only a novelty to be gawked at, but even things like paint, decorations, and even medicine. Incense. Incense. Fuel. Potpourri. Air fresheners. Uh (laughs) You know, Christmas tree topper. Yeah. Exactly. Of course. (laughs) Just stick that hand, hand in your curio cabinet. Exactly, back scratcher, speaking of hands. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this fascination with mummies has extended into our modern times in films and books and even video games. Mummies are so cool. mm -hmm. Yep. Do you guys remember when I was a mummy for Halloween? Oh, do we ever? That was a good good costume. Yeah, it was great. You know what? Thank you. And I just want to say there's never and not enough mummies out there. you got to be a mummy. I hope I, we inspire at least one person to dress up like a mummy. Mm-hmm. That would be cool. And we yeah, want to see yeah, pics it didn't happen. Yes. <laughs> so before we get into these sacrilegious practices, uh, we should talk briefly Woo! about Egyptian mummification processes, just in case somebody out there, anybody out there doesn't really know like what goes into the entire process. It's a very complicated and long process. Yeah, a, a refresher would be nice, too. So Paula Viega uh, describes the process in her academic article, Studying Mummies and Human Remains, Some Current Developments and Issues, which was published in the Journal of the Washington Academy of Sciences. And this will be a little lengthy, but she does a really great job of just laying it out. Yeah. Unraveling it. Oh, yes. (laughs) Unraveling the process. (laughs) So, quote, Intentional mummification with evisceration, disembowelment, started from the 4th dynasty, which was 2613 BCE, onward. It started fading as a funerary practice in the 7th century CE, probably as a result of the influence of Islam. So in order to prepare the bodies for the afterlife, the lungs, intestines, stomach, and liver were removed and preserved in jars, and linen wrappings were tightly fastened to the whole body. The heart was also removed, usually shielded by a scarab depicting chapter 30 from the Book of the Dead, for protection Woo! in the afterlife. Nice. I made one of those once out of porcelain. Oh, cool. A scarab? Yeah, a heart scarab. Oh, oh neat. It's a, it's a spell that um, asks your heart not to betray you and your journey through the afterlife and tell, tell all these lies about you, but they're not actually lies. They're true. <laughs> What if you got a like a you know like one of the mom tattoos, but it's just said mummy with the, like over the heart, you know? Oh God, yes. that'd be pretty. <laughs> pretty sweet. <laughs> so to to continue, up to twelve <clears throat> up to twelve or more layers of linen bandages can be found on an Egyptian mummy. An optimal mummification procedure would involve changing the linen several times, up to seventy days, to eliminate all moisture from the body. Ooh. Yeah, like so I th- work. I, yeah, so you, I, th- I think you know we have that notion that they just wrap it and it's like oh done. <laughs> just um, oxygen no, the sarcophagus. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> but no, yeah. So they 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 wrap it and then they unwrap it and they change them until you know yeah. I mean, and then use use other things to help dry them out. But 
Yeah, I thought, I thought that was really, really cool. That was amazing. <clears throat> it's very yeah. labor intensive, too, because they're usually pretty, they're kind of like complicated, layer, many layers of, of wrapping. The patterns Have are you... beautiful. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, the face thing where it's like a square, like going into it. Yeah, it's like these concentric um, squares kind of go into the yeah. middle. Yeah, it's very, very cool. So cool. Mm-hmm. That is cool. So natural factors and ingredients such as dry soil, wind, and salt contribute to preserving a dead body from deterioration. Liquid resin was then poured into the lying down body, which drained into cavities and solidified there. Uh, Pitch was also found mixed with the resin in mummies that were analyzed, which we'll discuss a little more later. So sacred texts were read aloud and rituals chanted, while ingredients such as cinnamon, animal fat, and minerals were applied during the mummification process. Mm. Embalmers used incense oil, and the resin worked as a glue to make the linen bandages stick well. According to ancient Egyptian beliefs, medicine and magic were a bundled concept, and the, cha- the chanting rituals was necessary during the mummification process, end quote. Nice. So another interesting thing that I found is that if a body was missing some part like a toe or a penis, or maybe even just a, like a limb, uh, they would make a prosthetic for the mummy to complete the body, which would, like in theory, restore that part to the deceased in the afterlife. So like you were oh, missing an arm, wow. they'd put a prosthetic arm and then in the afterlife you'd have an arm. Ah. Yeah. That's neat. That's so cool. I mean like out of all the things to collect that that were, you know, stolen from those burial sites, that would be a crazy thing to have a mummy arm or leg or something. Yeah. Yeah, sure. well I think I think on one of our last episodes we had just kind of briefly mentioned they had found like a prosthetic um toe yeah and so that that wouldn't have been an uncommon uncommon thing like even prosthetic penises have been found like entire limbs and teeth and that goes back to an old to the egyptian myth of i think it's osiris um yeah when like his brother basically kills him and like scatters his body parts everywhere osiris's wife isis um yeah, she gets she goes and on this journey and she tries oh, to find all the body parts and assembles them, but the one part she doesn't find is his penis. penis. So she just makes baby. a prosthetic for him and <laughs> I guess supposedly it, it worked fine and they were both pretty stoked about it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. He's like, does it look bigger? Obel- does it obelisk. no? <laughs> yeah, an obelisk. <laughs> no, really, that's supposed to be that's what it's supposed to represent is his missing penis. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh hell yeah, it's a weird looking penis. Obelisk, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was just like a little bit of like what the mummification process is. Um, cool. So when Napoleon Bonaparte tried his hand at being a conqueror, he invaded Egypt in 1798. Along with him was a retinue of scholars, and they ended up writing a book about their findings, and this really kicked off the European fascination with Egypt, or Egyptomania as it would later become known. professional and amateur archaeologists they all flocked to egypt to study the ancient civilization and it also allowed for the looting and damaging of the many treasures and artifacts under the guise of academic pursuit so by the early 1820s mummies had become a, a kind of obsession for the victorians so archaeology was like the wild west back then it was unregulated and europeans didn't treat their findings with much respect They looted tombs, stole the treasures inside, and many archaeologists brought all of their findings back with them, including mummies. Mm -hmm. So as a result of this thirst for exotic and novel Egyptian culture, a market sprung up for the sale of mummies to Europeans. So at one time, you could just go and buy a mummy, and due to this, many had parts of a mummy, 
or an entire mummy sitting right in their living rooms as an exotic decoration. And this was the best case scenario <laughs> for a mummy. Yeah. Wow. Because so, then they were all. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Go ahead. Yeah, oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, no, we'll get into a few things. So, yeah. yeah. So so we'll talk about a few of the ways that mummies were used and abused. <laughs> used and abused mummies. <laughs> Come and Use get them. Me, abuse me. Chicken nuggies. But I just want to say. <laughs> <laughs> mummy um, nugs. Mummy nugs. Light it up. <laughs> but yeah, any any like I, I hate to say any fad that was, you know, um Egyptian revival, like whether it be furniture or fashion or jewelry, always the fucking coolest shit. And like totally. especially it's almost like chinoiserie where it's like um a French interpretation of like Asian uh, like decorative arts it's like this the european interpretation of egyptian stuff like mixed with this like neoclassical style it's always just so so delicate and pretty mm-hmm. i just heard Love that it. term the other night on antiques roadshow neoclassical no uh chinwa chinoiserie chinoiserie yes. chinwa it's a fun it's a fun word it is a fun it word. makes you sound smart <laughs> 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 so yeah, I guess Heather, you want to kick off with the first uh, super s- fucked up thing? Yeah. So um, I'm going to talk about mummy brown paint. Mummies are works of art in themselves, <laughs> but they all lo- start to look the same after a while, don't they? Sitting in there mm-hmm. in the corner, all dead and dirty. Dead, dirty. A solution? Ugh. How about using the powder from grinding up ancient mummies and use it in creating a paint pigment and putting them into art. Damn. That's right, Heather, and for fourteen ninety nine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I was just kind of been trying to wrap my head around this for the last couple of days, like looking into this. Like how did this seem like a good idea? Or right. Is your burnt umber just not cutting it? <laughs> <laughs> So one of the more well-known uses for ground-up mummies was this mummy brown paint, also called Egyptian brown or caput mortem, translated as deadhead. This pigment had a rich brown hue and could be utilized in oils and watercolors. It had a good transparency, which made it great for shadowing and shading on flesh tones. Wow. Yes. So it was like a glaze kind of thing where it wasn't opaque as much as it was yeah, like, I, transparent. Yeah, it, it, well, so I'll get into that a little bit. It was a bit of an inconsistent thing. Oh, wow. Um, but it was made from myrrh, white pitch, and of course, the corpse powder of human, cat, or crocodile mummies. Mummy Brown gained popularity with European artists sometime in the 16th century as exporting mummies was big business around this time. 16th century? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, yeah, we'll, we'll find that they were getting down on mummy stuff in the 16th century. They sure were, man. This is the 1500s, the Renaissance? Yeah, like yeah. the late 1500s. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, I didn't know that. But uh, this pigment was most popular between the mid-18th and 19th centuries, likely due to the fascination of the macabre, and, of course, the Egyptomania going on in Europe and America. Supposedly, Eugene Delacroix's famous painting, Liberty Leading the People, 
Edward Byrne Jones's The Last Sleep of Arthur in Avalon, and Martin Drolling's, I'm going to butcher this, it's in French, Le Interior d'une Cuisine, were all painted using Mummy Brown. (laughs) (laughs) Mummy Brown seemed more of a vogue material, though, than a practical one, as it was difficult to achieve consistency in its production quality, likely due to the differing qualities of the source mummies themselves. It was unreliable to use efficiently, as it could be really good or really bad. American author and playwright Lofton Osborne explains in his 1845 Handbook of Young Artists and Amateurs in Oil Painting that Mummy Brown stands neither air nor sunshine, dries with even more difficulty than asphaltum, is not better as a bitumen than the latter, and is besides a fat body. And finally, that there is nothing in its hue which is not to be obtained in certain other really good browns. It is not particularly prudent to employ without necessity these crumbled remains of dead bodies, which must contain ammonia and particles of fat in a concrete state, and more or less liable to injure the colors with which they may be united. It is therefore that we ourselves have never yet felt the least desire to assay this pigment, seeing nothing to be gained by smearing our canvas with a part, perhaps, of the wife of Potiphar that might not be easily secured by materials less frail and of more sober character. That's a really long way to say this paint sucks. <laughs> yeah. That's great. <laughs> it's like, this shit sucks. <laughs> Throw it in the trash. Let me explain. Let me explain you real quick. Yeah, you might be smearing the wife of some Egyptian dickhead on. I mean, like it's cool and all, but mm -mm. Mm -mm. um, I was gonna ask, can you still find it, like on eBay? Like, was it that common? Well, um, no, they don't produce it. You can buy Mummy Brown, but as I'll explain later, it's the it's not the same. It's not produced the same way. Of course. Yeah. I suppose my question was, can you find like an old tube of it? Um, like a collector I mean, kind of they, thing? They do have them um, in museums and um, probably private collections too. There are pictures mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. So also there was the moral dilemma of using the mummies in such a way. Use of mummy brown was thought as distasteful by critics of the time. And I can't say that I disagree. That's really what I've been trying to wrap my head around. It's like, it's crazy. (laughs) Something about the way that these bodies were desecrated and destroyed to be used in pretty things is unsettling, to say the least. Yeah, it's it's super fucked up. And like and and we'll find that, like, I don't know, they do some like kind of sidestep and like, oh, it's actually not that bad. Or like they're like, oh, let's say a prayer over it. And like, it's okay. Okay. It's just, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's super fucked up. And it's like everything pre 20th century is like, we can, but should we? Yeah, we still Let's can. Let's do it. Like, Let's do it. Yeah, yeah you know for mm-hmm. sure. They're dead. Who cares? Caverns, mummies, like any just ancient thing, like people traping around there, like all kinds of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll kind of talk a little later about like that imperialistic perspective you know of like we are superior to like these mm-hmm. non-european other people yep and so it kind of like of course doesn't matter as much yeah yeah fuckers mm-hmm. mm. pre-raphaelite artist 
Edward Byrne Jones certainly thought so as well. He did not agree with the moral the moral implica- implications of this. So his widow explains yeah. how the artist reacted when he found out from a friend that actual mummies were used in the pigment. We were sitting together after lunch, the men talking about different colors that they used, when Mr. Tadima startled us by saying he had lately been invited to go and see a mummy that was in his colorman's workshop before it was ground down into paint. Edward scouted, scornfully rejected, the idea of the pigment having anything to do with a mummy, said the name must be only borrowed to describe a particular shade of brown. But when assured that it was actually compounded of real mummy, he left us at once, hastened to the studio, and returning with the only tube he had, insisting on our giving it a decent burial there and then. So, wow. <laughs> so a hole was bored in the green grass at our feet, and we all watched it put safely in, and the spot was marked by one of the girls planting a daisy root above it. <laughs> it's so funny. Like, you could imagine being at that, like, lunch, and, and you know, he's like, oh, mummy paint. And the guy's like, it's like a name, right? He's like, no, dude. No, we actually grind up mummies. <laughs> Isn't that fucking sweet? <laughs> <He's> like, what? <laughs> I'm just surprised. Okay, so check it. I thought that they, like, send them a box of ground up mummy or something, but I did not realize they, like, sent the whole thing there for them to deal with. Yep. They would grind up the mummies themselves. They'd buy the the mummies like by like fucking cartloads. I've seen the old etchings of the sales of them. Yeah, yeah. They just look like Civil War body bags or something. Like they're just crazy. It's insane. Yeah, so if you if you if you look at some photos like of after uh, unwrappings, which we'll get to a little later. Um, yeah. yeah. Like they they're just completely destroyed. You know, like like the mummy inside. It just it just. Oh like, yeah, because they're you know well we'll, we'll get into it. I don't want to I don't want to give it yeah, away yeah. right now, but yeah, super fucked up though. It's just... It is. <laughs> so when the 20th century rolled around, it seemed that the general public gained more awareness of the historical significance of mummies, and were in turn appalled by the way they had been mistreated. This, of course, led to a sharp decline in production of the pigment. Color makers Robersons of London continued to stock it until the 1920s and 30s. However, oh, it was not selling well at all. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> still shitty paint! Why does nobody want to buy this human paint? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> Although the pigment was available all the way up until the 60s, and Roberson's managing director had this to say when asked about the controversial color. We might have a few odd limbs lying around somewhere, but not enough to make any more paint. We sold our last complete mummy some years ago for, I think, three pounds. Perhaps we shouldn't have. We certainly can't get any more. Oh, my God. That sounds like such a fucking fine art, like, painter (laughs) bullshit-ery. Ugh. (laughs) Like, it's for art. It could be what it could be fucking your firstborn if it needs to, you know. It's not like it used to be back in the day. We were doing lines of mummies. Do you even understand Michelangelo? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So, Mummy Brown today is concocted of a mixture of kaolin, quartz, gothite, and hematite, with no corpse powder to be found. Oh, man. Interestingly, though, the idea is still alive today, as it is a somewhat common practice for loved ones to 
of the deceased to take their departed's cremains and mix them into paint for a memorial art piece. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, y'all okay. asked me to do that once when we were all hammered at a funeral. I'm still, I'm still <laughs> down, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got a few different plans for for my body. Make me look pretty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like would love, would love to be in some paint. Would love yep. to be in a mm-hmm. plant, like a tree. Yes, and I want to be a tree too. And then some other cool shit. I don't know. I'd love to be on a whore's ass in a tattoo. I've always wanted to be in a daddy tattoo. <laughs> There's a company out east that will take your remains and they'll compress them into a bird feed cube. So that's really cool. Isn't that neat? So you because it's kind of like a Tibetan sky burial, yeah. but it's not nearly as gruesome. Right. So you come out as bird shit on some some fisherman's jacket. Hey man, yeah, I like it. I think it's how we're all gonna a be. cool yeah, idea. That's pretty cool. And they get <laughs> yeah. the nutrients. We're, we're all just shit on a fisherman's jacket, oh, you man. You guys, today <clears throat> today I saw a little bird that fell out of its nest no, too early. I hate that. And I, I no. just didn't know what to do. What do you do when you see that? You There's can't do anything. Nothing you can do really. Yeah, you can either, I mean, if it's alive, you can either take it home and nurse it, and but, I mean, that's a pretty time-intensive. and I know. Yeah, I it mean, there's, like, really, it, there's really not much you can do. <clears throat> it was, like, almost adult, but still fuzzy, you know, not, like, a Aww. naked one, but Poor and I had to go to work because I had, like, 15 minutes left, but fuck. Hopefully someone scooped him up and called animal yeah. rescuers. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, so, anyway, that's that's pretty much mummy paint right there. Oh man, that's cool. <clears throat> I didn't know, man. It, I didn't know it was like still around till the '60s. That's fucking nuts. Yeah, yeah. Really yeah. I mean, there's probably just that color colorman's shop. I'm guessing. I don't. I because they that I guess this this particular place. Um. Uh, what was it? Ro- Robertsons of London. They've they have been well established for a really long time. Um, so I assume that they have. All the weird pigments that you probably can't find at your run of the mill paint shop. Oh my Man. God. There's like some like Italian paint joints kind of things, like in types of red and blue that are like hundreds and hundreds of dollars for just a tube of it. Just there's just some really rare things out there. Yeah. It's crazy what they'll crush up and put in some paint. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's like what was it, Robertson's in London? Robertson's in London, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if they have like some sort of like mafia like thing, and that's like how they get rid of like. <laughs> Maybe. Well, turn them into some paint. Oh. Turn them into some paint. <laughs> and keep your mouth shut. We'll call it Filbert Green. <laughs> After Filbert Green, the man we kill. <laughs> Funny coincidence, huh? <laughs> <laughs> all right so yeah next we'll talk about um mummy medicine so according to historian richard sugg quote up until the late 18th century the human body was a widely accepted therapeutic agent the most popular treatments involved flesh bone or blood along with a variety of moss sometimes found on the human skulls hmm. unquote So, mummies, of course, were not introduced to Europeans by Napoleon's conquest. Medieval texts described mummia, which referred not to... Mummia! Mummia. (laughs) I think it's it's like a Middle Eastern word, so I'm not sure how how you would say that correctly. Mummia. 
Um, but this referred not to the mummies as a whole, but to the natural bitumen that was used for me uh, me medical purposes. So the Persians, going back to the 11th century, called bitumen mum. And when they thought they had discovered bitumen in mummified bodies, they called it mummia, which mm. is where we get mummy from. Mamma mia. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I should be shot for that. It's a me, a Mario. <laughs> <laughs> so, according to the publication, The Significance of Petroleum Bitumen in Ancient Egyptian Mummies, quote, The modern term bitumen refers to a specific, naturally occurring petroleum product, also known as asphalt, that has lost its vol volatile hydrocarbon components via bio biodegradation and or evaporation, leaving a black, semi-viscous, or even solid material. However, as bitumen was black, early Egyptologists and more recent researchers fell into the habit of describing all black mummy bombs as uh, having bitumen. Hmm. So in America, bitumen is known as asphalt. It's the same stuff that we use to pave our roads, which is a mixture of gravel, sand, and other fillers. And the bitumen is the binding agent, or we, we might kind of think of it as like tar or pitch. Hmm. Interesting. So... Yeah, so when heated, bitumen becomes viscous and it's easy to like use. It's very pliable, almost like kind of like a, uh, like a thick syrup. Um, mm -hmm. And as it cools, it hardens. So because of this pliability, it was used for many things in the Middle East, you know, uh, going back to like the early Middle Ages, maybe even further back. Um, it was used as a construction material, a form of insect deterrent, and it could be used to mend broken bones or act as a binding agent in like salves or balms uh, for rashes. So, according to an article written by Michael Carr for ScienceHistory.org, quote, later scientists would learn that bitumen also has microbial and biocidal properties and that bitumen from the Dead Sea contains sulfur, also a biocidal agent. So, bitumen does have, like, these medical properties that, that can be useful to people. <clears throat> oh, interesting. I wonder if there's yeah. a metal band called biocidal, and if there isn't, there should be. <laughs> biocidal! Fuck it. So, ancient texts describing the mummification process and the medicinal properties of mummia goes all the way back to the time of Herodotus, which was like uh, I think sixth century BCE. Uh, he was a, he was a Greek historian, and then the Roman naturalist Pliny. And this most certainly was a misunderstanding or mistake made by ancient peoples who saw the dark resin-like substance used in mummies and mistook it for the ever-useful bitumen. So, you know, so like they saw the, the, the stuff on the mummies and they're like, oh, that's bitumen. And, you know, like this whole, that kind of kickstart this whole misunderstanding of mummies having, being coded in this bitumen, basically. Because, right. <clears throat> yeah, I like mean. they could make you, it kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, like we could just take mm -hmm. it off the mummies, you know, like what will happen later, um, you know, but they've done modern testing and basically they've shown that most of the mummies before the New Kingdom, which is about 1550 to 1070 BCE, uh, had absolute, had no trace of bitumen. So they weren't using bitumen as an embalming agent. Right. Um, so after the New Kingdom and into the Ptolemaic and Roman periods, the use of bitumen rose, showing that it was a later introduction. But, you know, so this but this misunderstanding continued well into the 19th century when people thought that the black resin-like substance 
coating the mummies with bitumen, giving the mummies themselves healing properties. <laughs> so as early uh. as the 16th century, mummies were being looted from tombs for the supposed bitumen that the mummies contained. And the sale and popularity of mummia became so popular that the market became saturated with fake mummies made from executed criminals, slaves, beggars, and camels that were dried in the sun or by other means. Uh, yeah, so crazy. So, wow. Yeah, so so they so like people thought that they were like when, whenever they get the medicine, which I'll talk about in a minute. You know, they thought, oh, this is coming from an ancient mummy, but people were just like either killing people or taking dead bodies and drying them out and just being like, yeah, here, it's a mummy. It's a genuine it's mummy. So it's gruesome. Fucking... <laughs> yeah. That's it's also like, like how many um, skeletons that we have in our classrooms and things that were procured in like the seventies mm -hmm. and eighties yeah. that are like from India that were stolen from funeral pyres and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 yeah one so one guy, crazy. one guy was written to have like been gloating about the fact that he just like, cut up a camel, dried out the meat, and like was like, yeah, it's human. It's it's, it's, it's ancient human flesh. Wow. And he was like, you make it a killing off of it, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Well, good for him. <laughs> I mean, poor camel, but. So by the 16th century and onwards, you could find mamiya on the shelves of apothecaries. You could buy a powder version, which was the most common form, or you could just buy broken off parts of a body. So you could mix the powder into a drink and take a few doses a day for the desired effects. And people would also mix it into a balm to like put on their skin for rashes and like other skin diseases. And some of the things that the ancient authors said bitumen could cure was cataracts, toothaches, skin diseases, and it could be mixed with wine or vinegar to quote, cure chronic coughs and dysentery or to dissolve and remove blood clots, unquote. Damn. So people are putting that shit up in their eyes. People all are doing over. all kinds of shit with it. Yeah. But see, so so yeah. so if it was straight bitumen, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. Were they Stevie Nicks it and booshing it or what is that? <laughs> Boofing it? Boofing? <laughs> so this medical cannibalism isn't just limited to mummies. Other medicines contain parts of human bodies. Dead human flesh, bones, fluids, and even feces would be used in certain medicines, which is often referred to as corpse medicine. So it could mm -hmm. also be used to induce vomiting or diarrhea. Which, yeah, I'll say. You know, during. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So during that time, they thought, <laughs> you know, that this purging was was a good sign. It's like, oh, you're getting out all these toxins, like you're puking, shitting out all the bad stuff. Yeah. So like. You know, eating human flesh wouldn't be such a bad idea if you're trying to induce <laughs> vomiting or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh yeah, God. and you know, and, and of course, and and you know, with that, it wasn't just ancient people. Like sometimes it would be bits of, of just a dead body, that they were just using, and it was like fine. <laughs> it's great. So, so to the Europeans, Crazy. these. Uh, these were ancient remains and uh, people who were not Europeans. So there's a detachment there, you know, so we can kind yeah. of understand why, you know, that popularity of consuming a mummy for medicinal purposes wouldn't have been so frowned upon. You know, it, it is that disconnect that, oh, well, these are inferior non-European 
non-British people, mm-hmm. you know. Of course. It's still batshit yeah. wacky crazy, though. I mean, tale as yeah. old as time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, e- even King Charles II was said to carry around a, tinct- a tincture made from human skulls, which he called the King's Drops. <laughs> They're my lozenges. <laughs> <laughs> it is also what I call my shit. <laughs> So that author Carr also points out that the transformation of corpses into medicine gave the illusion that it had completely transformed. It was not, so it wasn't like getting down and gnawing at a dead body on the road, you know, <laughs> through, through that, that, that transformation into a medicine. It was now something different, you know, right. in their minds. Yes, <laughs> in their head. <laughs> <laughs> So there also might have been a symbolic nature as people often believe that they were ingesting the remains of like a pharaoh or, or some royalty when usually it was actually just a commoner. Um, oh, like they're like, you know, their ancient yeah. magic will heal my y- yeah. fucking boil Kinda. At, um, boils on my ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, you know, think about this is also the, like kind of during the beginnings of the spiritual spiritualist movement. So you would definitely have um, like those ideas. Yes. Yeah, so they thought it was some royalty and or you know or some some pharaoh or some some queen and you know so this would give the corpse medicine more power or potency in their minds. And if we recall from our human sacrifices episode, some mm-hmm. barbarian warriors were said to ingest the heart or blood of enemies that were slain in battle to imbue them with more power or courage. And yes. we also see this happen in other places like Africa. So it's an incredibly old idea, this sort of idea of like it's that it's that medical cannibalism or, or it's just it's eating something to gain in its the hopes power. Or it, yeah. Mm. And the belief that it's going to like, you know, benefit you in some way. <laughs> Whatever. And, well, and we al- but, but we also <laughs> see this idea reflected in the Catholic Eucharist um, <laughs> where they believe that if you can, you know, the, the communion wafer. Yeah. So. You know, I don't know if Catholics still believe it, but, you know, definitely in the 16th century and before, they thought that the wafer literally became the body of Christ. Ew. So you are you are consuming the body of Christ, essentially. Well, and then like my my favorite fascination was always the holy reliquary, like the body part reliquaries Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And I know it's not cannibalizing it, but it's like keeping these things obsessively and like thinking you've got the tears of Mary or the breast milk of Mary and like mm-hmm. opening it for very special occasions and maybe to consume, maybe not with healing properties. Yeah. And there was, there was its own huge fake black market essentially, you know, where people totally. would just sell fake, um, yeah. Fake reliquaries, you know, yeah. like, Oh, this is the, the thumb of, you know, a pope or one of the early popes, or, or... they had to bury people in secret once they became saints back then, mm-hmm. because people would come from all around to steal their body parts. Yeah, I mean, when um, you know, when it mummies got so big with Europeans, you know, you, you had a lot of like the populace of Egypt. I mean, they'd go in and loot stuff and try to sell to Europeans. I mean, usually because they're starving or on hard time, so it's like you know, kind of understandable in in their position. But I mean, like, mm-hmm. but people were looting the tombs back in the old kingdom, you know, because like in the old kingdom is where we find all the biggest pyramids, like the Pyramid of Giza. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. once they kind of found out that all these were being looted, then they started hiding the tombs with still the same amount of like 
of yeah. of treasures and things like that. But now they were hiding them in the hills, which is where we get the Valley of the Kings, where they're all kind of hidden what, I remember dotted through the valley. Mm-hmm. Neat. The more you know. Da, 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 da. Yeah, so so people are just fucking grinding up mummies and like they're throwing it on their face and they're Ooh, like doing doing mummy shots and you know like <laughs> jerkies. So though the practice faded away, it is interesting to note that the line between the acceptable and the taboo is paper thin when the only thing that guides those distinctions are our own perceptions. Or mummy flesh. Or mummy flesh. There's <laughs> insati- insatiable thirst for mummy flesh and shots. For mummy flesh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mummy shots. <laughs> oh god oh i know that We're sounds gonna, awful oh but it tastes like a fart <laughs> yes 100 <laughs> <laughs> percent. all right so the next thing i'm going to talk about is mummy paper so it is believed that sometime in the 1850s paper was produced from the linen wrappings of the mummies However, this is hard to prove and hotly debated by historians. Hotly debated. Hotly debated. Damn, I'd like to be on that debate. <laughs> they did hey guys, it. guys, we got the hot mummy contest. Woo! <laughs> oh, wait. Just put mummy contest. talking a bunch of bullshit that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> From the 14th to 19th centuries, cotton was the primary fiber used in paper production. A lot was needed to make this rag paper, about one and a half pounds of rags to make a pound of paper. So cotton shortages were a common problem, especially in America, because they printed the most newspapers of any country, and yearly paper consumption was as much as England and France combined. So by the mid-1800s, the problem became so bad that mills started importing importing cotton scraps and clothing from Egypt. Now, it's easy to see how rumors of mummy paper could start this way. In fact, a single mummy had yards upon yards of these linen wrappings for just the sing- uh, one body. Mm-hmm. But scholars assert that claims of use of mummy wrappings to produce paper are unsubstantiated. However, there are sources from old news reports and claims from mill workers that seem to support that this actually did happen. So whenever they use them as toilet paper, like... They just had an entire tire rolled up mummy and they just put it on a big roll and they would just like <laughs> pull the cloth off and spit on like a... They might as well. Jesus. <laughs> In an 1858 report from the Cleveland Daily Leader, a correspondent who visit, visited a main paper mill as the materials from Egypt arrived explained what he witnessed. Yesterday, I visited, in company with Mayor Woods, the two principal paper factories and I was astonished in looking at the millions of pounds of rags piled up in warehouses or spread over acres of ground to find that a portion of them had recently arrived from Alexandria and Egypt. They were the most disagreeable, odiferous old clothes that I have ever had the fortune to smell. This, doubtless, was owing to the fact that a part of them were in a damaged state. The Egyptian rags had been collected from all corners of the Pachas Dominus, from the living and the dead. How many cast-off garnets from Hawajis and Hajis? How many tons of big, loose Turkish ragged breeches? And how many headpieces in the shape of old doff turbans? The deponent saith not. But the most singular and the cleanest division of the whole filthy mass came not from the limbs of the present generation of travelers, pilgrims, peasants, 
soldiers and sailors of Egypt, but were the plundered wrappings of men, bulls, crocodiles, and cats, torn from the respectable defunct members of the same. Mummy clothes, as well as old rags of Italy, are ground up and come forth mingled in fond embrace and in the purest white. I'm just going to say this guy sounds a little racist. Extremely judgy, right? Yeah, I, I would say he sounds very racist. He's just yes. He's like oh, oh these different. old duff turbans and their big underwear. And <laughs> I know. It's yeah, just, it's just like dude. Okay, I don't want this <laughs> clothing steeped in heathen gravy. I think he was making yeah, he does some like a flask of mummy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it was just probably regular old clothes that they were getting from Egypt, and he's like, oh. This, this has to be from mummies. It's just disgusting. Precious. <laughs> that is hard to say. <laughs> it is also said that mummy paper was used in wrapping groceries. According to S.J. Wolfe's Mummies in 19th Century America, during the Civil War, paper manufacturer Isaac Augustus Stanwood had the idea of importing boatloads of mummies to use the linen wrappings in production. <laughs> boatloads! <laughs> The mummy cruise. Everybody <laughs> about the mummy cruise. That's a good one. That's good. Thank you. I like that. I'd like to see that. I would too. <laughs> it's like that scene in The Shining where, you know, she comes down and all the skeletons are like in their chairs and they have like drinks and shit. Great party, isn't it? Great party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd watch that. Is that what he says? Is that what he says? What no, he say? that's that's he says that, but it's in another scene. That's in like a different scene. Mm. <laughs> and then that oh, went, I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, then the bears like blowing the other guy. Yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes from a movie because it is the biggest what the fuck <laughs> yeah, ever. So weird. <laughs> and it's just it's stylistically the bear face, the guy, like the whole package. It's just great. It's really strange. Close the door. It's so strange. Close the damn door. <laughs> no, they want to be seen. That's all I gotta say seen. about that. Oh, oh, oh that's People the dirty. People are weird. Yeah, yeah that's a, those ghost that's freaks. That's exciting. God, <laughs> that's why that. That's why they rented out the whole hotel so everybody could see it. <laughs> so with the boatloads of linen wrappings, they produced a slurry out of these materials and made large sheets of brown paper that were quote sold to shopkeepers, grocers, and butchers. Who used them for wrapping paper? Oh. And then someone wrote, "Dear Santa." <laughs> <laughs> so potentially, they were wrapping people's meat and stuff in, like Egyptian mummy wrappings. Well, yeah, paper produced from the wrappings. But, but, like, yeah, yeah but, like potentially, yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah, delicious. I just, I, I still am unsure how people got sick back then. <laughs> I just don't know. Can't imagine why. I just don't know how that happened. Yeah, weird. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's almost like they fucking shove anything into their mouths. I know. Like, we know it's a dead person, but, you know. Oh, I wonder, I wonder what this, oh, I wonder what that tastes like. <laughs> oh. oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh... So there is another interesting piece of evidence, air quotes, that came in form in the form of an acknowledgement printed on an 1856 issue of the Syracuse <clears throat> Daily Standard. It read, Our daily is now printed on paper made from rags imported directly from the land of the pharaohs on the banks of the Nile. 
They were imported by George W. Ryan, veteran paper manufacturer from Marcellus Falls in this county, and he thinks they are quite as good as the general run of English and French rags. And they'll make you a king! <laughs> so, I mean, this sort of hints that wrappings were used in the manufacture and printing the paper. However, there's really nothing conclusive there. Mm-hmm. But... Perhaps the most intriguing piece of evidence is a Norwich, Connecticut bicentennial hymn that was printed by the Chelsea Manufacturing Company in 1859. In a small box below the printed hymn is this claim. Chelsea Manufacturing, the largest paper manufacturer in the world, the material of which it is made, was brought from Egypt. It was taken from the ancient tombs where it had been used in embalming mummies. A part of the process of manufacturing is exhibited in the procession. The daily production of the company's mills is about 14,000 pounds. So again, this is a very fascinating piece of evidence, but sadly, it can never be confirmed. Carbon dating of this claimed mummy paper would be impossible, as the rags would have been mixed with other materials. So Mm. it looks like we may never know if this truly was another use for mummies or not. Yeah. It's just like, it's so funny. Like, I, I don't know, I guess it's just that old, you know, mindset of like that kind of like imperialist European sensibility. But it's just like the, the just outwardly bragging like, oh, we stole these from the from their tombs and we pissed all over the place before we left and like yeah. took a big shit on the floor before we. It's just like, oh, dude, <laughs> pretty just... much. It's it's. I I mean that would have been that would have been just the only last thing you could have done to make it just just the worst thing that you could do. I know it. Well, and this is just like not even getting into the types of treasures that would have been looted as well. Yeah, I mean like yeah, some of the most beautiful like gold enamel work, coins, pottery, Mm -hmm. like. Clothing, anything. We're just focusing kinda... in on the desecration of the bodies here. Oh, yeah. totally. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's so that's much. one of the what's well, one of the great like kind of archaeological like disappointments. Uh, you know, is like because so many the, the great tombs were looted like in in antiquity. Yeah. Like we'll never know the scale of the treasures because like the the tomb of King Tut, he was sort of like a. Not a very important, not a very well known. Didn't even rule that Mm-mm. long, and his Mm-mm. tomb, what you know, it was still intact. Extravagant, super yeah. extravagant, just filled with like, I mean, it was the archaeological find of, I mean, of history. Right, and yeah. he was just a relatively unknown pharaoh. So we could imagine what a great pharaoh, what his tomb would have looked like had we been able to find it before it was looted. Yeah, what an interesting reminder. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. So I guess we'll get to our, this is our last one, right? I think. Yep. All right, cool. So this is like maybe the one most people have heard of. I had heard about it, but didn't really know a lot about it. So yeah. Um, these are, this is the unwrapping parties or unrolling parties as they were known. Rolling parties? <laughs> yeah, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Get out your mummy paper and roll some fucking mummy kush. Baddies. <laughs> yeah. Some- <laughs> Ew. <laughs> <laughs> so unrolling or unwrapping parties are exactly what they sound like. Victorians, usually the upper class, went to events where a mummy was slowly unwrapped and revealed, kind of like a macabre birthday present. So these were usually done in a lecture hall setting, 
But we're also done in private events in people's homes or at a small business, you know, maybe like in the back of a store or something. Nice team building and exercise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say. Team building Get a exercise. T-shirt, I hear. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> so uh, these were big events for those who were scholars and also for those who wanted to seem like they were learned. You know, it was a lot of like the upper class who wanted to seem more which was like everybody. Yeah, educated and like, oh, oh, oh I have this interest. <laughs> it's yeah, it's all it's all it's all a novelty though. Yeah. So these events would sometimes be attended by hundreds of people. Um, some were invited, but others had to pay to attend. And there was there was an academic interest in these events, but many came because it was a spectacle produced by the Egyptomania that had gripped 19th century Europe. Before Jean-Francois Champollion uh, deciphered hieroglyphs using the Rosetta Stone in the 1820s, many academics relied on the other ancient texts like Herodotus to understand the process of mummification. So, and that was kind of like one reason they were kind of saying they were doing it. It was like, oh, to learn more, to actually learn how, how it was actually done. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but, but when when Champollion, you know, um, deciphered hieroglyphs, then they could actually read those ancient Egyptian texts and actually kind of get like their step-by-step -step processes. Right. Aziz, more light. <laughs> <laughs> So while people held these parties under the guise of academic pursuit for knowledge, they often ended up just tearing these mummies apart um, and just destroying them in the process um, because they just were untrained. They didn't know what the fuck they were doing. And the age of the mummies had made them like incredibly fragile. Yeah. You know, and so they, you know, like their description of them just like trying to get shit through. And then it sounds like they basically like stick a crowbar in its head or just like, come on, hold on one second, everybody. Now, see, if you look at the, uh, if you look at the scare markings, <laughs> it sounds like a lot of bit of like, just like, oh, here we go. And then it's just like a lot of, oh, oops. oops. Oh, oh, no, oh, that's not supposed to come oh. off. Oops. Oops. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> the macho man Randy Savage comes in he's like oh I'll get that body open for you <laughs> <laughs> you want to crack it open see it's inside <laughs> <laughs> so mummy and rolling events became incredibly popular in France and Britain and <laughs> it was first kick started by Giovanni Belzoni Belzoni, a six foot six former circus strongman, actor, and inventor, became involved in the transport of Egyptian antiquities to Europe. While many what? of these, <laughs> yeah, he just people That's just disliked him. Yeah. <laughs> so while many of these items ended up in museums or with private collectors, he also maintained his own large collection, which included many mummies. So in 1821. He began his own exhibitions of mummy and rollings to accompany his book about his travels. So he he basically used these as a PR move for his new book. Wow. Yep. <laughs> Let's hang out. Let's crack open a few mummies, ladies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's Do quite the marketing. Q &A, crack open a mummy. You know. You know. Potato, potato. <laughs> so yeah, Belzoni did his first one. I believe it was in Piccadilly Circus. Um, yeah. And it was a huge hit. He had brought in more than 2,000 spectators. And as a result, he did a few more after that because it was just it was just so popular. 
Um, so no, at no, what no, if- please, I can't do another <laughs> unraveling. All right. <laughs> <laughs> the people want what they want. Mm. <laughs> One more. <laughs> so at one of these events, surgeon, antiquary, and author Thomas Pettigrew, who would become to be known as Mummy Pettigrew, was in attendance. So he would take the unrolling events to a whole nother level, becoming one of the most famous lecturers on the subject and even writing a book, History of the Egyptian Mummies in 1834. So he was actually an academic, but, you know, he was not above um, destroying some fucking mummies. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Inserting some confetti. (laughs) <laughs> like someone just makes an issue. Oh, incision. this always like, gets oh! <laughs> this always gets the crowd just going crazy. Crazy. <laughs> I, I don't know what possibly could be. It's oh, <laughs> magic. <laughs> <laughs> so here is an excerpt from the Literary Gazette about one of Pettigrew's unrolling parties from June 1848. Mister Pettigrew delivered a perspicuous lecture on the various processes by which the ancient Egyptians preserved their dead. The case generally replete with mythological formula, the rapins often disclosing the name, and perhaps the rank of the deceased. All this, and much more, Mr. Pettigrew explained in a luminous manner, so that the least informed could readily understand what the learned would be pleased to hear, summed up in so clear a style. After this, the unrolling of the mummy was skillfully performed, with observations as the task proceeded, worthy of Mr. Pettigrew's long experience in having, we believe, done as many as 40 or 50 similar subjects. The Copton question, for so he was decided to be by his cradial and facial form, was 5 feet 8 inches in length. A load of other trappings were successfully removed. Here was found the head of a dragonfly. Altogether, the specimen was a fine one, and in perfect condition to demonstrate a mode of embalming of a third or fourth-rate class of persons. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So they loved it. It was great. Yeah. They're like, oh, the head of a dragonfly. How cool. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. Pictures and questions at the end, please. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So this was not just a visual performance. The audience's... Um, other senses were also employed. As the lecturer would unroll the wrappings and speak, they would pass around fragments for the audience to experience. They would get to feel the delicate wrappings, smell the pungent and sweet resins and spices, or hold the amulets and other artifacts that were found with the mummy, sometimes even wow. tasting these fragments if one was really adventurous. And some were. Uh- <laughs> and then they put blindfolds on and say... These are the eyeballs of the mummy. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, these are his guts. These are his brains. (laughs) It's so dry, all of it. (laughs) So, you know, but but so you have a real diverse sensory experience at these events. And, you know, sometimes pieces of the wrappings or even parts of the mummy would be given out as a parting memento. Fucking, it's like an Aerosmith concert. They're throwing them out like scarves or something. You get a hand. Yeah, or like a fucking you get guitar a pick. Yeah. Here's a tibia for you. <laughs> yeah. Here's a drumstick, kid. Dude, what kind of what kind what kind of pick is that you're using? Oh, it's a mummy fingernail. Ew, that's so disgusting. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So 
in a more <laughs> academic setting, they would lay the mummy out on a table and surround it with the various funerary objects and, you know, accompanied by images and texts. Uh, the lecture Make a game of whack-a-mole out of them. <laughs> <laughs> so the lecturer would give some background on, on Egyptian culture and religious practices, and then they would begin the enrolling. The lecturer, with some assistance, would enroll the mummy little by little, showing the layers and, you know, the embellishments that lay beneath until they finally get to the body itself. They leave it naked and bare on the table for all to see, the corpse of a human who was once like them three or four thousand years ago. And sometimes they would actually just straight up fuck up the body like they would just start sawing into the head and pop it open and be like, oh, it's filled with sand. Or I like, was going to say, he's got a shitty boombox and he just plays this song like, you can leave your head off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, they tear open the chest and, and see what's inside. And, you know, I mean, yeah, like. That's terrible. <laughs> you know, he'd play like the got your nose thing and nope, tear off the <laughs> nose. <laughs> well, oh, they always so love I- that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> love it. It's so horrible. So as time went on, these parties fell out of favor as legitimate concerns about desecration and archaeological ethics came more into vogue. Um, the last one was said to have been done in 1908. So, but wow, mm-hmm, yeah, it was done by this woman. I can't remember her name, um, but it was. You know, it wasn't really popular when she did it, but she, I think she was like the first woman to be at like a a professor post for archaeology or something like that. I, I Sorry, I can't really remember, but she was kind of like an important like academic figure. Um, oh, she's probably like, I saw this when I was a kid and I've always wanted to do it. <laughs> oh, I just wanted it. to cut into a man. <laughs> I want to see it. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, but, but, you know, now, now with CAT scans and other technological technological advances, we can study the insides of mummies and the other fragile artifacts without having to utterly destroy them. That's nice. Yeah. Because, I mean, that was basically what it was all about. You know, it was like this need for instant gratification, you know, when they were just like fucking crack open the butt you know like a like the shell of a lobster you know they're just like i know i'm like seeing baked potatoes lobsters (laughs) crab legs yum (laughs) yum yeah so yeah that's essentially what those unwrapping parties were wow crazy Mm -hmm. fucking people yeah and i and i guess just like as a brief closing mention you know it's interesting how mummies have become monsters now and like from the 20th century on you know like the mummy is like synonymous with the werewolf dracula and like all the universal monsters Mm -hmm. and that's kind of like a mistreatment of them too in a way i mean when you think about it it's just kind of like a novelty um i mean yummy mummy cereal do you guys remember that I do. I do remember that. <laughs> it's, Ugh, it was... Which actually kind of now sounds gross. Like I know. Yeah. Yummy mummy. Yeah. <laughs> Brand flakes. And I it was <laughs> I was reading about like mummies and literature, um, and it was the thing that jumped out to me the most. Like the, in a lot of books and stories from the early 1800s, the mummy as a character in a book would be often a romantic interest, like. Mm. <laughs> like a living mummy, there would 
Mm, like, it, yeah. yeah, I guess, you know, Bram Stoker wrote about it in Jewel of the Seven Stars and then Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, The Ring of Thoth. Um, <laughs> it's just, uh, it's it's crazy how living mummies as monsters didn't really come up until, you know, Boris Karloff's depiction in, you know, the, the mummy, the movie. Which is so good. Yeah, it really is. Becky, how's your new boyfriend? Oh, it's good. He's a pharaoh. He's a he's a mummified pharaoh. <laughs> Very proud. Oh. Yeah, it's just coming. A, we kind of been just kind of I don't know stomping all over mummies for for centuries almost, and it's not yeah. going to stop anytime soon. Well, you know, and, and I think there's something about curses that have to do with them kind of coming into that like. Um, you know, um, um, sinister, that, that, yeah, sinister monster evil. territory. Um, yeah. And I mean, not to mention they're a dead human being and like any kind mm-hmm. of dead thing is usually like an element in horror. If mm-hmm. it's like some kind of exposure of a skeleton or an emaciated body. It's yeah, like it's almost like a, a zombie almost. Which yeah, is I was weird. just going to say it's totally, almost almost like I mean, a proto zombie. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's, a, like, it's proto. just a jerkier one, drier, jerkier and rapid one. Yeah, because well, I mean, like you know, curse the the idea of curses or like saying that something is cursed it was has always been a deterrent for robbers and stuff, or you know, at least yeah, hoping right. that it would be. You know, it's like don't go in there, you'll get cursed. You know, it's just... same with like a witch's or a mm-hmm. warlock's curse yeah. or something too. You know, cursed grounds, Native Americans, that's shitty, but you know, yeah. So it's kind of like you're saying, Kate. It, it adds this like sinister element to something that's like. You know, like, I mean, it's just a dead body, you know, it's just it's just an old mummified body. But, you know, yeah, it's it is really fascinating how that is really translated into, you know, like, yeah, fucking Tom Cruise fighting a mummy. It's an iconic monster now, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. And I could be wrong because like, you know, it just like the Victorian fad and then the 1920s fad and then the Renaissance fad, like they may have misinterpreted hieroglyphs because they were still learning and a lot of these probably weren't curses. Yeah. They were just misinterpreted. Right. You know, prayers or what have you. Mm-hmm. That is true. Yeah. So, like like I'm sure the 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 afterlife journey may have sounded like that or something. Yeah. Oh, sure. Or I mean, yeah, or you look at just, you know, the the like the chants and rituals that went into the mummification process. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of that could start to sound like, you know, magical incantations, you know, or, or curses, you know? Yeah. Kind of like you were saying with the, like a witch, you know, like I am and, and doing all this other crazy shit. And so, yeah, it could have sounded very like dangerous. Yeah. Um, it was to, probably to just that, like a warning, that. like, Hey guys, don't, don't go in there and, and yeah. tear up our graves. Yeah. Thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like you'll be punished in the afterlife kind of yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe not in like the actual life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Man. Yeah, that's uh man, yeah, I'm trying to think of the is has there been like a, a recent mummy thing? It feels I feel like it's kind of gotten out of fashion a little bit. No, I did, don't did know. Did Tom why, Cruise finally so ruin cool. it? I think Tom Cruise finally ruined it. I don't nah. think they can be ruined. In fact, I need to be a mummy again soon. It'll come back soon. It always yeah. does. Mummies. Mummies rule. We'll all be mummies someday. <laughs> Darn right. Yeah, man. So yeah, that was that was a fun one, man. That's yeah, uh, it was fun. It was pretty crazy yeah. shit. Yeah, it was just crazy Europeans, man. 
Just you reminded me of a lot of things I had learned, and it's a pleasure to return to them and then share them because it was all very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a really cool history. Yeah, I'll have to. I still have my textbook. I'll have to share it with you guys because it was pretty pretty good. Oh, that's awesome! Well curated examples of things. What was the what was the textbook? It was just for my um, Egypt, the the ancient Egypt class. I just don't remember the name of it or anything. Oh, okay, all, yeah, yeah. It's all in storage, mm-hmm. but yeah, it it was a good one. A collection of lots of essays and things like that. Oh, neat. Nice. Okay. So yeah, I guess we should do socials. You. All right. So you can follow us on Facebook at Under the Pendulum Podcast, on Instagram at Under Pendulum Podcast, on Twitter at pendulum underscore pod and you can find all our episodes on spotify itunes podbean google Podcasts, stitcher the iheart radio app iheart radio app or almost anywhere else you listen to your pods and um yeah please if you like our show or you like anything that you're hearing um you know please like and subscribe wherever it's applicable um it helps us get noticed and and talk Mm -hmm. to us too we're around yeah absolutely yeah talk to us yes We're all very approachable, promise. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can find me, Heather, on Facebook at Heather Thomas, Instagram, h.n.thomas, Twitter at Heather W. Thomas, and you can hear my narrations on Creepy, Tales to Terrify, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and The Wicked Library. You can find me on- And you can- Oh, no, go, no, Katie, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. You can oh you can find me at fro- uh Instaham Frothy Star Dog, <laughs> and uh, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook by searching for Christopher Weber. And that's sweet. So yeah, um, we'll be back with another more lighthearted episode. We're we're gonna yep. try to do some some more fun ones for the next few since the Mary Shelley series was a little uh got a little heavy. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. a, little... a lot of ours have been heavy lately. I'm so excited. Yeah, it was a little heavy, <laughs> a little dry. But uh, yep. yeah, so we'll, we'll have a little more fun here. Um, yeah, so thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Let's walk into the love. <laughs>